You're listening to That Music Podcast with me, Bryson Tarbett. I'm the music educator and blogger behind That Music Teacher and ThatMusicTeacher.com. Join me as I dive into what it really means to be a music educator. I hope that you're able to find a nugget of inspiration each week as I share my favorite ways to create purposeful instruction through active music making. Along the way, you'll hear from some of my amazing colleagues as they share practical advice that you can apply to your own classrooms. So grab a coffee, sit down, and let's get started. This episode is brought to you by my free guide on better serving our students with disabilities in the music classroom. I firmly believe that our job as music educators is to help our students find the way in which they can be best musical. And when it comes to teaching students with disabilities, most of us don't feel prepared to best serve these students. In this free guide, I'll share five ways to better serve the students with disabilities in your classroom so that you can truly say that your classroom is for everyone. To grab your free guide, head to thatmusicteacher.com disabilities. Again, to grab your free PDF guide, including a foreword by Lauren Morsenkowski about why disability isn't a bad word, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com disabilities. This conversation was an absolute blast. And again, I know I say that in like every episode, but truly this is one that like I could geek out and talk about forever. And that is the intersection of music and music education and then the neuroscience of it because I just I just love all that. So I was super excited to bring presenter and author Jen Rafferty um, onto the podcast to talk about um, the intersections between music, memory, and neuroscience. Jen Rafferty began her career as a middle school music teacher in central New York. Jen brings her joy, humor, and expertise to all professional development workshops. She's known for her practical ideas and passion in her presentations while inspiring teachers to stay connected to their why. Jen currently serves as the co-chair of the New York State School Music Association Secondary Classroom Committee, member of the Advocacy Committee, and is the president of Cortland County Music Teachers Association. She earned a BM in music education and vocal performance, a master's of music and music education from Ithaca College, and is currently pursuing her PhD in educational psychology. Jen is frequently invited to conduct elementary and middle school choirs throughout New York State. Additionally, in 2020, she founded Sing Together, an international virtual singing community of singers of all ages and abilities. Her most recent publication is A Place in the Staff, Finding Your Way as a Music Teacher, available on Amazon and J.W. Pepper. A little side note, that is a wonderful book. If you have never read it, you should take a look. So without any more chatter on my part, here's my conversation with Jen Rafferty on music, memories, and neuroscience. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to That Music Podcast. This is going to be an extra exciting episode with the wonderful guest, Jen Rafferty, and we're going to be talking about the brain and music and how everything is connected. So, Jen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited for this conversation, uh, especially I, I've really always been interested in how music is, affects the brain. And then when I started my master's program, the first class we took was all about music psychology and it just kept it going and I kept more, got more and more interested in it. So I can't wait to pick your brain to, so to speak, about your experience with it and how, what it means for us as music educators. Yeah, it is super interesting. I'm, I'm fully down the cognitive neuroscience rabbit hole right now and there's a lot of interesting things about our brains that we aren't necessarily taught in our pre-service because there just simply isn't enough time. For sure. There's Again, there's definitely, there's not enough time. <laughs> so before we really dive in, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, and then what you're currently doing with your life? Sure. So I am originally from Long Island and 
I studied music education and vocal performance in Ithaca, at Ithaca College, which is in central New York. And it is um, just a beautiful, special place. And I joke around that I I discovered my inner hippie when I was there and I decided to stay. And I've been in central New York for the rest of my career as it is so far. And I ended up in a job for most of my career teaching seventh and eighth grade choir and seventh grade general music. I had built a modern bands program and was the head of my music department for a number of years was in a a few different roles and leadership roles in my district. And when COVID hit, a lot of things shifted for me, including my decision to stay home with my own two children to do homeschool. And since I can't sit still for very long, not only did I do that, but I also decided to start my doctorate degree in educational psychology. And I've always been on the teacher education conference circuit for for quite a number of years. I I started that early on in my career because I started to notice really right when I got out of college that there was a lot of gaps between what teachers needed and what was available to us in our pre-service. So I really dove into a lot of this developmental brain research really, really since I was like 22. I I was just fascinated by it. I I realized I was armed with content and pedagogy and philosophy, but I really didn't understand who the kids were who were in front of me. So I had been doing all this research for most of my career and sharing it with teachers. And to be honest, my big dream was to teach teachers. I always thought it would be at a university, but what happened during COVID with me being home, I decided to start doing my own teacher education programs based on my research. And because it was virtual, I was able to reach people not just from, you know, my region, but internationally. And when I had to make a decision about whether or not I wanted to go back into the classroom, I realized that for what I wanted to do, my impacts could be bigger outside of the classroom. So I incorporated my business and now I am uh, full-time with Jen Rafferty Music LLC and most recently teaching my program that I created called The Empowered Educator which outlines a whole bunch of things and a lot of which has to do with mindset and that's really based in neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience. That is awesome. I know I'm, I'm also one of those people that like sitting still, um, I don't do well with that. (laughs) I tend to fill my time with more commitments. Uh, so I totally feel the, the fact of kind of just, um, deciding to start a PhD, you know, I, (laughs) I've definitely had that conversation with myself very, very often lately. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been an adventure and I I love learning and I've always done the research. I've always found an outlet to write and now it's just official. For sure. And I know that you're like you said you're also very multifaceted, but other than your research and things like that, what is something that brings you joy in your life? Um, outside of teaching and and education. Well, I I live in, I think one of the most beautiful places, Um, you know, central New York where I am close to the Finger Lakes has just the most beautiful waterfalls and, and hiking trails uh, close to the Adirondacks. So just being out in nature really grounds me. And I, I enjoy, like I said, you know, when I came to Ithaca, I really found my inner hippie. I, I got really into yoga and, uh, being in nature 
is something that I, I do as often as I can. So let's kind of dive in a little bit and talk about how you got to where you are now. I mean, if you really think back to it, what led you to pursue, pursue your degrees in music? And then also what ultimately led you towards the, the PhD track? So I always knew I wanted to be a music teacher from when I was very young. I remember feeling incredibly inspired by my own teachers, you know, which is often the case of, of, of teachers. They're, they're inspired by the people who taught them. And I was so connected to that. It was really more like a calling to me than a choice that I had made. And I knew that really early on. I mean, I had saved you know, my portfolio from eighth grade choir, because I thought in the future, when I had my own classroom, I might need need these materials one day. I mean, it was ridiculous, you know, and, um, I did, and I had that vision and I followed it. And and my high school choir director really solidified that for me. He was, is a, a magical person. And so it just made sense. That's just what I always was going to do. So I decided to pursue music education and vocal performance at Ithaca so I could get my hour voice lessons <laughs> instead of my half hour voice lessons. And I really wanted to do my recital requirements. It allowed me to travel and study abroad. I was in Australia for a semester, which was an amazing experience. And then as far as the the PhD, my decision to do that, I didn't want to get another music degree. Uh, teaching music is very near and dear to my heart, and that is a big part of who I am. However, the things that I had been learning was really applicable to all teachers. And I've slowly opened my, my offerings and, and my vision to what it is I actually want to do to affect really all teachers. So I decided to get my degree in educational psychology, particularly because of my interest in how people learn. And I I always, I always had a, a, a strong interest in the adolescent brain because most of my career I taught middle school. I mean, I've, I taught music from pre-K all, all the way to, you know, I, I've had students in my choirs who, was, who were in their 90s. Um, and it, it was beautiful to to do all of those, those different age groups. But for whatever reason, middle school always spoke to me. It was totally my jam. And I was just interested in their, their brain developments. You know, like, like I kind of alluded to earlier, I was armed with this philosophy and pedagogy and, and content, but I didn't really understand my middle school students. I didn't understand my high school students. And a lot of that research led to bigger programming, more inclusive programming, which allowed me to develop this modern band program, which allowed for more participation in the music program across the the school community. And I learned a lot. And looking ahead, all of those lessons now can have a greater impact on teachers of all content areas because they're really universal lessons. I think you bring up a really good point where one, you know, we all know that there's just not enough time in undergrad to learn everything. (laughs) There's just, it's just not going to happen. 
but even when we like i know my in my particular situation when i started my masters i chose my masters because i felt like i really didn't know how to teach elementary so i chose a masters that was based in kodai and you know now you know and now that i'm nearing the end of my master I, masters i feel a lot more prepared to teach elementary but because i did my masters in music education rather than like a masters in education i feel like i'm missing out a lot, a lot of the kind of overall the ha, kind of the context of everything like you were saying how how do we learn how, how do our brains work obviously there's parts of that here and there but it's always through that music lens and i think it can be important and kind of helpful for us to look at things from a different lens to see how we can bring it into the music classroom rather than kind of having something presented to us more or less on a silver platter where we don't have to think so creatively about it and into how it implements in our classroom Oh, hundred percent. And um, afterwards, you you're reminding me there's someone that I I might want to connect you with because she talks about just that, and her dissertation is about just that, about taking outside content, uh, excuse me, outside pedagogy, um, and applying it to the music education classroom because it's true we um, we only are getting literature that has the lens of music education. And so part of my research early on was actually my love of social science. Like I love reading about the social sciences. My bookshelves have very few music education books on them and are full of social sciences, everything from psychology and neuroscience to marketing and advertising to communication and creativity and innovation. And those books really were the things that fed me as a music teacher, because if we're just looking through a very small lens, we're missing the bigger picture. And what I found was I was able to connect dots in places where people didn't even realize there were dots in the first place, let alone connections. And so what I was able to bring to the table in my own teaching practice and then sharing with other teachers was like, hey, this thing in marketing, which we talk about, you know, how people pay attention and their excitement and interest in buying a product or a service is parallel to what we're trying to do in the classroom because don't you want your kids to be excited about the things that you're saying? Don't you want them to want it more and want it again? And so I would take things from my research in marketing and advertising and I would implement that into my music classroom. Um, I would take things about communication and implement them in the conversations that I would have with my administrators and innovation and how we build a program. So you're totally right. There isn't, there isn't time to do all these things in undergrad. However, I do think that there is a, a, a way to teach pre-service teachers how to ask really good questions. And I think that above anything else is what served me really well as a graduate of Ithaca College at that time, because I walked away knowing how to ask good questions, which led me to a, a whole bunch of rabbit holes. <laughs> I love that idea of rabbit holes because I feel the same way. I feel like I'm so multifaceted as a person that sometimes it becomes an issue of focus because I'm like, Ooh, what about this? Ooh, what about this? Ooh, what about this? And I just like, all right, let's, let's find something. Let's ask those questions, dive into it. And then we can move on to something new. Mm -hmm. But I think you also bring up a really good point of 
that not only do we need to get out of just the music music education realm, but sometimes we need to get out of the education realm and just look at it, look at things in a different realm and bring it into our field. Because I, just like you said, I've, you know, I I think that can be really helpful to offer some fresh perspectives as well as making sure that, you know, we're not just getting the same stuff kind of repeated. We're bringing some new stuff into the, the field of music education and we're actually trying to do things, whether it works or not, the process of trying new things is super helpful. Yeah. You know, and at at the end of the day, I I think the the most important thing that I've learned through doing this research and and trying these things out in my classroom, my programs with my leadership, you know, when I, when I was head of my department, it's like, I think it really comes down to having enough vocabulary and context to communicate because music teachers, especially have huge blind spots. And I say music teachers, especially because we're on a music education podcast right now, but also because I'm, I'm not going to apologize for this because I think it can resonate with a lot of people. If we're honest about it, we're so self-righteous about what we do, you know, and, and that that's okay. It just is. We're so passionate about what we do. And we totally believe that music education is a part of, you know, every student's experience in school and we understand the value of lifelong music making and we are so passionate and dedicated to the cause that it's almost to our detriment because we don't generate enough common language and vocabulary to effectively communicate to the people who really need to hear the message to become advocates of our program. So when we do research or we we look at places outside of music education, what we're doing is we're broadening our horizons of what people are talking about, what people might be exposed to. So then when we make connections to different things, when we go turn around to advocate for our program or to communicate with an administrator or a community member or a parent, we have more tools in our tool belts. You know what I mean? Yeah, that is a really good point where, you know, we could talk until we're blue in the face, but if, if we don't have a shared language, you know, or, you know, sh- com- common things that we understand that are powerful enough, like you're right, we, we might not be saying anything, even if, we, if we're spending all day talking. So I think that the idea of having that, that vocabulary that we can use, um, that isn't super, isn't like super music education or music, music education specific, but it's just like human specific or education specific, or just like, this is what it is, can be really helpful um, when we're having those conversations, when it's not just a bunch of us music educators geeking out um, at a bunch of music theory or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And it's, you know, it, it, it we have to be real about that, you know, how we're viewed and how we we don't, we don't see our blind spots. So I, I guess for me, I'm, I'm constantly looking around going, just maybe like walking in circles, looking for my blind spots and then just like finding a rabbit hole and going down there and learning about that thing and then turning around again and finding this other thing and, and learning about that thing. So um, the more we can do that, the more effective we are, not just, you know, as communicators and, and advocates, but better teachers because we know more. And when we know more, we, we, we know better, we do better, right? That's, that's how it works. So kind of 
bringing it back to music psychology because I know I could just like talk about this forever. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but music psychology is something I honestly, I absolutely love. And I have a lot of really good, a, a great deal of interest in. But for you, why do you think music teachers should explore these connections between music and psychology more? I know we talked a little bit about, you know, getting outside of the music field, but why do you think it's so important for us to understand the psychological concepts of what's going on in our students' brains? So there's a couple different things. I think the most important thing here is is to understand that a lot of music pedagogy or, or just school pedagogy right now, or education pedagogy, is based in psycho- cognitive psychology, which is awesome. That's what we've had. Those are the tools that we've had to work with to build these these the foundation on of, of how we teach. Um, cognitive neuroscience is a, is a newer field. It's it's just um, around twenty years old right now. It's 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 brand new, but understanding how your brain works physically and biologically, paired with the cognitive psychology and the pedagogy, really creates this beautiful marriage of understanding, and then we can move forward and and teach the thing. So here's, here's a really great example. You know, when we're talking about schemas, right? We learned about schemas in uh, what sophomore year um, educational psychology class, right? Love me a good schema. <laughs> we love, we love schemas and we understand scaffolds. We understand that we need to go from the known to the unknown. But if we're able then to take a look at what's happening in our brains, what's happening is when these two neurons are talking to each other for the first time, it's barely a connection. And the more that we're able to connect what we know to what we don't know and repeat that same connection, it goes from barely a connection from neuron to neuron. So we're talking about like a dirt path, so to speak, right? From, from one neuron to the other. And the more that we're able to do it, that dirt path becomes a road. And then that dirt path becomes a highway. And then all of a sudden those synapses are just firing really, really quickly. So having this understanding of schemas is one thing, but then understanding what's happening biologically in your brain is a totally different level of understanding which explains why schemas are important in the first place. I, again, I could just like chat about this forever because I'm kind of a geek about it. Um, <laughs> but let's let's kind of try to continue this because I know that I don't want to take like four hours to talk about this, um, even though I easily could. Uh, so in what ways do music and neuroscience interact in a way that is important for us as music teachers? So I guess what I'm really asking is how can music teachers use this knowledge of the connections between music and neuroscience to our advantage in and outside of the classroom? Well, I, I think the the most interesting thing right now is like a really easy takeaway is that there are very few things that light up your whole entire brain when you're, when you're doing something. Um, I was talking with actually a neuroscientist from Portugal just recently. And and he said the only other thing that he can think of that really lights up the brain as much as music is mindful movement. And even that was like a close second. Yeah. And he said that, you know, mindful movement, you know, for example, like, uh, like 
Tai Chi or, or something like that, where you're slowly moving. And he actually is funny enough, made a comparison to hip hop dancing to you because you have to know, you know, how to pop and lock at the right time. And you have to be very mindful in, in your movements, but that even that's connected to music. Right. So, um, an, an important takeaway that I think is concrete enough for, for music teachers to walk away with and use it as an advocacy tool is that when you are participating in music, you are literally lighting up most of your brain. And when you're able to make connections with more things, <laughs> the more you're going to remember the things, the more of an impact it's going to have on your ability to recall and, and to make memories. And you know, you are physically changing your cells when you're making vibrations in, in your body. And so there, there are so many takeaways for advocacy in this regard, right? Because um, it's, it's concrete. It's, it's science-based. This isn't like, oh, well, you know, there's this Mozart effect and you know, this can happen when we play classical music with kids and they might achieve better. Like, no, these are actual brain scans of people who are, are listening to music, who are playing music, who are singing. And the more that we can activate the students' brains in, in their activities that they're doing throughout the day, you know, the, the, the more they're going to have these deeper experiences at school. That's that's really good to know. It's it's like we said, you know, it's not all about what happens in the brain constantly. We don't want to be stuck in neuron to neuron, but it's important. I mean, we're educating children. The brain is kind of involved. And I think that's important for us to understand that if the brain is involved. This is not just an artistic um you know, something that we listen to and we, you know, we either like it or we don't like it. There, there is something going on in our brain that shows that music is something a little different than, than some other things that go, go along with us. Yes. Well, and, well, that's the thing. The listening and the artistry happens in your brain. <laughs> like that's, that's where it happens, you know? And so the, the idea that teachers have very little understanding about the brains yet are quite literally brain changers is so fascinating to me. Like to me, that's one of those gaps, right? Um, we're literally changing people's brains right now. Just, you know, you and I are talking, we've never talked like this before and uh, we're changing each other's brains just because of the way that we're able to talk to each other. And now think of the you know responsibility that teachers have standing in front of students, giving them these learning experiences, um, you know, learning about, the brain to me is, 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 is an essential piece to being someone who, who wants children to, and students of all ages to make memories, to pay attention, to recall information, um, understand skills about metacognition. Um, and all of these, if, if you think about what you're doing in your music classrooms, if you can do it better because you understand how the brain works, imagine what your kids could be capable of. Exactly. It's, it's, it's adding another layer of knowledge for us as the teachers to inform our instruction, to inform our lesson planning, and to uh, kind of have that research backing into what we're doing. So, you know, we're not just doing it because 
because we're doing it because you know the research suggests that you know these, there are certain ways that the brain works best, um, especially when we're talking about different ages of students. Um, there can be methods that work better than others um, in different age groups. Absolutely, uh, you know, and I'll I'll give you another example. Um, you know, so the reticular activating system is the part of your brain that serves as a filter, right? So you have all the stimuli coming in all the time and the RAS serves to filter out. So you are only able to experience a smaller number of stimuli. That's awesome, right? Like way to go brain, because if you were actually experiencing all of the stimuli all the time, it'd be pretty overwhelming. You probably would probably, probably make you a little incapacitated to do anything. But what happens is you're only seeing a small number of things, around 40 things, and, and hearing and experiencing. So um, it works like this. You know how you're going to buy a car, right? When, what, was the la- what, car, what kind of car do you have, Bryson? I drive a Honda CRV. Awesome. So you want to go buy your Honda CRV. And what color is it? It is gray. Gray. So you're like, you know, I'm going to buy a gray Honda CRV. And then what happens? You're looking around as you're driving and you're like, oh my God. They're everywhere. Everywhere. That's <laughs> crazy. Why does everyone have this Honda CRV? This is nuts, right? Like, when did this happen? Well, you actually, that is, is a great example of how your RAS works. You told your brain to look for gray Honda CRVs. And so you saw them. They were always there. But your RAS filtered them out because they didn't think it was important. And so why is this important for when we're teaching, especially teaching music or any sort of performance-based subject? Well, because if we're focusing on deficits, if we're focusing on the things that we're not doing right, and if we're focusing on how we sound and we're not, we're not thinking that we're quite up to par, well, then guess what? That is all you're going to see. And this is really important, especially for music teachers, because we teach kids to look for deficits. And then what happens? They quit or they grow up and they think they can't do it because they were so used to just seeing all the things they couldn't do. So when we flip the script and we understand the role of the reticular activating system in our brains, then all of a sudden it can have a huge impact on how we talk about assessment, how we talk about feedback, how we talk about constructive criticism in a way that highlights all of the things that went well. And then of course, talk about the things that could be improved. But Uh, For me, that is another very powerful example of how we can use brain research and, again, marriage of cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience to, to really shape the way that we interact with our kids and uh, how we build our lessons. I, I love that, that, 
that image, you know, that car that you see and realizing that that's not just something that happens to us. That's something we should be aware of in our classroom and how that works in our brain. So I know we talked a little bit about that, the memory aspect of, you know, filtering things out, but for music teachers, when we're really thinking about memory, whether it be memory, just like working memory or content memory, why is the psychology of, especially with knowing what age group you're working on, why is that useful information for us as teachers? Well, because, you know, your brain is developing as, as you get older. So there are things that make sense for a high school student, which doesn't make so much sense for an elementary school student. There are other things that we think our older kids don't need because they, we think they grow out of them, but but they really don't. Um, an example of this is, you know, um, high school students, and I'm talking just generally, you know, 13, 14 to really 24, because let's be honest, even when we're in college, which is just so funny to me that when we take an educational psychology class in college and undergrad, our own brains, like our own prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for executive functioning, isn't even developed yet. It's just, it's just not. So we're taking these, these educational psychology classes at that age with, with no experience in the classroom, but also our, our own brains ha- are not fully developed yet. But anyway, I digress. There, you know, that age group makes emotional decisions. They, they make decisions by, by their emotions first. And, um, so how can we use that then in the classroom, right? We know that about these students. Well, what if they were responsible for all of their emotional creative expression for the songs that we did? You know, why Why does the director necessarily have to be the person who does all the things? If we know that our high school students are emotionally driven, Music is the best way to connect to that emotion and and give them agency to go ahead and make emotional choices, right? Um, you know, sense of autonomy is really important for that middle school age. You know, 10, 10-ish to 13-ish, they need to have a sense of autonomy and being told what to do all of the time is going to backfire in your face. And so understanding that, how, how can you infuse choices throughout your lesson? Not just once, not just twice, like check off a box and be like, oh yeah, here, I gave them a choice here. How can you make that a part of your classroom culture? You know, when you're when you're dealing with elementary school students, you know, they are in super discovery mode. How can you create a classroom culture full of playfulness and games? I mean, as a parent, the difference, and I've seen this, you know, because because I've, I have young children and I did not teach elementary school in the public school system, um, but the difference between what they do in kindergarten to what they do in second grade is quite remarkable, whereas kindergarten, it was play, 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 centers, parachute, you know, all the things. And then all of a sudden, second grade, it's like, well, let's get down to business. (laughs) Well, if we really took a look at what they need developmentally, play is so essential 
to everything that they do, which is why I'm I'm so attracted to your work, Bryson, because your classroom seems so much fun. <laughs> all of all of the years <laughs> that you teach, it always seems like so much fun. And that element of play and playfulness um, is a huge part of their learning. So understanding their developmental needs is a, a a huge tool that I don't think is is taken advantage of because again, it's not really a part of our pre-service. And unless we actively seek it out, I don't know that this information is really readily available and easily accessible. I agree. And as you were saying that, I, I couldn't help but thinking kind of from the selfish aspect of it is, you know, if we have this understanding of how their brains work, we are going to be planning things or creating systems that are actively going against what their brains need. And by doing that, it just, it, not only are we providing our students with higher, you know, better education, not only are we having, you know, better outcomes for them, but also our life is easier because we're not putting out fires. You know, like you said, we're not having the, this things blowing up in our face all, at least all the time, because we have that background information where like, Hey, according to neuroscience, this is what their brains need right now. How can I use that as the starting off point to make sure that my classroom is at least set up at the best way that it can be so that we have, uh, we have a good shot of getting this right. hundred percent. We have a lot of like ideas and good intuition and feelings, which is like beautiful. But if we're really talking about doing this well and, and right there's so much more. And I, from where I'm standing, I, I truly believe that this deep dive into cognitive psychology and this understanding of then what's happening in your brain neurologically is, is, a, is the starting point to inform all of the other things. So I want to shift gears a little bit. And sure. I know that, you know, like you have that, you know, where you decided not to get a, another degree in music. So in what ways does music help our, our students uh, in settings that are not the music classroom. So how can music help students other than just for the sake of learning music? Well, that is such a big question. And I think that there's <laughs> so many ways to answer that question. I will, I will tell you, I will tell you one of the ways that's most recently near and dear to my heart. Um, during the pandemic, I, obviously had a an uh, a professional and personal identity crisis as most music teachers did right like oh my god i cannot be in front of my students anymore i can't be in front of my band singing is really dangerous who am i and i thought really hard about that and what happened was i decided that my professional mission was to inspire people to discover their voice still could ring true, even if it looked different than what I was used to doing before. So it led me to create a program called Sing Together, which has become this international virtual singing community. And the thing about virtual singing is that everyone's on mute, right? I mean, there's no visual platform right now where there isn't a lag where we can have these live singings unless maybe there is I don't, is there now i don't know if there is now not that i know of, but I mean, it, it, there know. definitely wasn't when things all this started yeah, <laughs> yeah I know things are changing so quickly i just I, I wanted to make sure that as as of today september 22nd 2021 <laughs> there there isn't any right now and so i i was like all right 
while we're going to do this, everyone's going to be on mute. And I still think that I will be able to live my, that, that mission, right. Of, of inspiring people to discover their voice. And what was really interesting about that, um, is that because people were on mute, the folks who had come to my class were the ones who were like, you know, Jen, I'm really not a singer, but I figured it was okay because I was on mute and nobody could hear me. And what would happen was that throughout the class, people would quite literally discover their voice and connect with something that was such a deep part of them that they did not even realize was there because it was shut off for so long. And because we couldn't hear each other, that became so liberating. And it was a strength. <laughs> it ironically was a strength. And so to answer your question, what I found was that in doing this and without having this outcome of a concert or a public performance, we were able to focus on emotion and understanding music through emotion and understanding emotion through music. And to me, that is the most important thing about making music that is not just about the music classroom. That if you can teach your kids to know themselves better through the magical art of music, then that's how we make people more human. That's how we elevate humanity. When we deep dive into these songs and what does this mean? What is the emotional intention here? What is this, what does that emotion feel like in your body? How do you sing it? What, how does that affect your voice when you sing it that way? And then we play around with it because we play. And I say, well, what if we just totally switched up the emotion? We did this opposite one and said, how does that feel? Now you have choices. Now not only you have choices, but you understand how happiness and sadness and anxiety and depression and love feels in your body. And we can make music better. And when we're not making music, we still understand what those emotions feel like in our body. And having that emotional vocabulary is something that music teachers can tap into so much more and give a gift to every single student by helping them understand their emotions, especially now. I cannot agree more, especially now. I mean, I, I have clearly believed that music education is important. And I, I, I think that music, knowing music is important. But the longer that I teach, especially, you know, where I teach, you know, we have a lot of, you know, students that have experienced a lot of trauma. I, I realize that there's so much more to music than just notes and rhythms. There's the empathy side of it, the social emotional learning that comes through it just naturally to the, the empathy of just understanding that, you know, we have to listen for us to be able to be together and things like that, where it's, 
it's so much more than just notes and rhythms. Notes and rhythms are tools in my, in my opinion. And, and look, you know, there are people who believe that technique is the most important thing and people who believe that literacy is the most important thing and all that's, I mean, no one's right or wrong. Um, but for me, in, in my experience and from what I've seen, um, this is the stuff that hits you right in your heart and gives you that full body vibration that it's it's resonating with you, not just on a musical level, but on that emotional level, that connecting level. And of course, literacy and notes and rhythms and, and technique, all of those things help. Um, but in regards to your question of, of, you know, what does this mean outside the music classroom? You know, if we're being honest, most of those kids are not going to move on to be professional musicians or music teachers. So, so what are the tools that are most important that we leave them with? And again, from my experience, it, it's that emotional piece. I could not say that better myself if I tried. <laughs> that was very wonderfully put. So Jen, where can my listeners go to learn more about how music affects the brain and what that means for us as teachers? And then maybe even more importantly, where can they go to find more of you online? Well, um, there's actually, I, I also have a podcast and I've had a couple of neuroscientists on there specifically talking about neuroscience and, and music education. So that's, that's one place that's, uh, the podcast is called take notes with Jen Rafferty. Um, there are so many books that I can kind of list off, uh, but we'd be here all night. <laughs> um, one of my favorites happens to be NeuroTeach. That is a, a great one about how teachers can effectively use the ideas of cognitive neuroscience to inform their lessons. Um, I, I, I love that one. And then as, as far as getting in touch with me, there's a lot of different ways. My website is jenrafferty.com. My Empowered Educator program is empowered-educator.org. You can reach me by email at music at jenrafferty.com and Instagram and Facebook at jenrafferty-music. I will be sure to put all those wonderful links in the show notes for this episode um, so that you Anyone that would like to can go find those resources and can go hang out with you online. So Jen, I really appreciate this conversation. I feel like we could both go on for like another couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and for taking some time and chatting with me tonight. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Always fun to talk to you, Bryson. Thanks, Jen. If you found this episode helpful at all, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Not only does this help me understand what you find most helpful, it also helps more music educators just like you find the podcast. To check out the show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com slash show notes.